Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 52. And this week, we're going to finish up the last few chapters of Hebrews and hopefully get into the first few chapters of Revelation. Now, we last left off in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, where the author just finished this rather large doctrinal section of the book. So because Christ is superior to all things, we should stay faithful to Christ and we should persevere in this life. And that's the subject of the final portion of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, through the end of the book, which is chapter 13, verse 25. So in this new section here in chapter 10, the last half of the chapter, the author calls us to respond to what he has just presented in three distinct ways. He says, let us draw near to God, let us hold fast our confession of faith, and let us consider one another. You know, these are distinct ways in which the author encourages his readers to move forward rather than falling back into that old sacrificial system. In fact, they were not assembling together, these believers were not, as the church, because these believers were being ostracized, they're being persecuted for their new faith in Christ, and therefore to avoid persecution, they were refusing to meet. However, the author is very blunt in telling his readers not to abandon their confidence. Don't give up. And this provides a powerful segue into the next chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Hall of Faith. Because chapter 11 contains examples of those who did not give up. They acted in faith. They persevered, some even to their deaths. The first few chapters, or excuse me, the first few verses of chapter 11 teach us the essence of faith. And I don't think the author is trying to define faith for us. I think rather the writer is showing us that the one who lives by faith will patiently endure through whatever comes in life. When a man or woman endures a hardship and comes through it on the other side, we call them a man or woman of faith. Verses 4 to 7 of chapter 11 detail faith before the flood in the lives of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Verses 8 through 12 is the faith of Abraham and Sarah. Then the faith of the patriarchs in verses 17 to 22. And the faith of Moses, verses 23 to 28. And lastly here, in verse 29 through 31, we have the faith of the Exodus generation. And, of course, certainly, and not least, is the faith of many other servants of God that are not specifically named. The author of Hebrews concludes chapter 11 by stating two essential truths about faith. One, all heroes mentioned in chapter 11 were commended by God for their faith. And two, none of them received what had been promised. If all the great men and women of this chapter um, could provide a shining or have provided a shining examples of faith and action, even though they lived in a time of unfulfillment, how much more should we today, when we've experienced the culmination of God's saving purposes we should stand firm as his people. We have the revelation of the Son, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, who has spoken to us in these last days. What's our excuse for not persevering in the faith? What's our excuse when we think about defecting into our old ways? Now, of course, the ultimate person of faith and the one that we should be constantly looking to is Jesus, and that's how chapter 12 begins. If Jesus was able to endure the cross and all that went with it, surely we can run our race with endurance as well. However, these believers did not want to suffer. They didn't like discipline. They wanted to escape and have an easy life. And while we all want that at times, we also have to understand that suffering and discipline have a purpose in our lives. There's profit in these things, and that's why the author of Hebrews is trying to convince his readers, in the end, suffering and persecution is worth it because of how it changes us and how it matures us. The last part of chapter 12 concerns a contrast between two mountains to demonstrate the further need to endure. The author was saying that don't flee back into the old system and find refuge symbolized by Mount Sinai because you will just find overwhelming fear. Our comfort is looking forward to Mount Zion, allowing that to be our focus of our race. We are fooling ourselves when we look uh, to this world to provide peace and comfort or when we look to an Old Testament system that was never designed to bring us to perfect 
peace. It almost seems like our author is saying that climbing Mount Sinai will bring you to a dead end, whereas climbing Mount Zion will bring us to the end of our path or bring us to life everlasting. Now, once these Hebrew Christians understood this, that they must endure, then in chapter 13, they can start functioning like a community, like a body of believers, as they needed to. Um, They needed to serve others. They needed to be on guard against false doctrine. They needed to worship God in an acceptable manner. They needed to submit to the authority of their leaders who watch over their souls. In closing out the book, the author asks for prayer, and he offers his own prayer for these Hebrew Christians. Now, that was a rather quick overview of Hebrews, but uh, we don't have much time, as I think I say that a lot. (laughs) The next book is James. If I could sum up the book of James in one word, it would be wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply God's word to daily life situations, and this is exactly what James does in each chapter of his book. In chapter 1, James shows us how to be wise in dealing with trials. We need to have a godly perspective on trials that come our way. They're meant to grow us. An unwise decision would be to blame God for our trials. Instead, we should be wise and ask God for help, help for us to learn the lesson he wants us to learn. We should also be using God's word during our trials. We need to lean into God and into his word and not run away from him. In chapter 2, James shows us that wisdom is needed in our relationship with others. You know, there seems to be a problem of favoritism here that seemed to be permeating the early church. And sadly, it's a problem that's still in many churches today. The ones who are showing favoritism, James clearly informs them they are committing a sin and are guilty of breaking the law. And breaking the law is not a wise thing to do. Instead, they should be merciful to others, a much wiser decision. But the issue of favoritism seems only to scratch the surface of a much larger issue, which the rest of chapter 2 explains. While works are not required for salvation, it's only natural that a person who has experienced salvation will want to show good works. Their faith is to be a living and an active faith, not a dead faith. A living and active faith does not show partiality, but a faith that is dead will be guilty of this sin. So a faith that is wise is also a faith that is producing works. Now, in chapter 3, wisdom is needed as it relates to what you say. Wise in your speech is very important, and this is why James launches into a discussion on the tongue and the dangers associated with it. But there's also a need to be wise in your thinking. Heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom are contrasted here in the last part of chapter 3. And these believers needed to adopt the wisdom that comes from above, that comes from God, while rejecting the earthly wisdom. In chapter 4, wisdom would dictate that we accept the friendship of God and reject the friendship of the world because you can't serve both masters. Trying to serve both masters is a symptom of what we call double-minded disease. Being double-minded can cause a world of problems. It can affect the lives of others as well. Being double-minded is showing that you are not committed completely to God and His work. We should rather be single-minded in our pursuit of God and His work, and that would be the wise decision. Now, lastly, in chapter 5, wisdom is important as it relates to our possessions or money. Money or riches is not evil on its own merit, but the temptation that money brings with it can be dangerous. Money and possessions can bring a false sense of security, a desire to control others, and often personal pride. It seems that the rich oppressing the poor was a perennial problem in many early churches, and so James tells the poor that they need to be patient and prayerful. The rich have a tendency to live for the present. But that can be overcome by using their money and possessions for the benefits of others. And that's a wise decision. In conclusion, within every decision we make in our Christian lives, the world tells us to be selfish and do what is best for us. While God tells us to be selfless and love others. And the latter is obviously the wiser choice. 
Now, from the book of James, we go into the books of First and Second Peter. First Peter was written to encourage believers in the midst of their suffering. The suffering was likely due to the persecution under the emperor Nero. The first two verses of the book introduce us to Peter. And Peter identified uh, those that he was writing to as aliens or strangers. You know, at the very outset of the book, he reminds us that, you know, we are citizens of heaven and we're not of this world. And because we are citizens of heaven, we can rejoice in the midst of whatever comes into our lives. And that's the main emphasis of his next section here in chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 10. These believers had experienced salvation, and while persecution was painful, it wasn't permanent. And so Peter reminds them of their future inheritance when their salvation would be complete and their bodies eventually glorified. However, in the present, he wanted his readers to live joyfully. He informed his readers that a believer's responsibility to God consisted of three areas, a correct perspective in life, a correct behavior in response to God's word, and a correct attitude that glorifies God. As you move into chapter 2, he continues his instruction about the needs to live holy lives, providing four images to help us better understand We need to take off the evil conduct like dirty garments. We need to grow in our Christian life like a baby grows up to desire more mature food. We need to build our lives with the help of Christ and his church. And then we are called to serve in the same way that the priests in the Old Testament system did. Now the next section is from chapter 2 verse 11 through chapter 4 verse 11. So because we as believers live in a world of unbelievers, we ought to conduct ourselves in appropriate ways. And that's kind of what he explains here. Our witness and actions that are seen by others should affect unbelievers in a positive way, not a negative one. So we are pilgrims and strangers. We're only temporary residents. We shouldn't refuse, or excuse me, we shouldn't resort to indulging in things that are contrary to God's will for us. Our mission in this world is to tell others the good news of the gospel and hold a testimony that glorifies God. Of course, we are to submit to the authorities and government by obeying them. We do this not because they're necessarily worthy of submission, but because by submitting to them, we honor God and we honor his word. So respectful submission is also to be extended to those we, uh, we work for, those who are our bosses and supervisors over the jobs that we hold. It's okay if you suffer for the testimony as a believer in Christ. Part of the Christian calling is to suffer, just like Jesus suffered. In the first part of chapter 3, Peter reminds his readers that good conduct in our marriages and family relationships, as well as in the communities that we live in, all these validate a person's faith in Christ as genuine. It helps his witness. When we obey God's word, we hold a testimony that's positive to the world who is watching our every move. Now, eventually, Peter tells us that even though we might be persecuted and suffer in this life, God eventually will vindicate us in the end. We need to have faith Um, have this inner confidence, rather, that God has our best interests at heart, and his ways are always the best ways. Peter tells us that Noah faced the same type of opposition in his days, and God would bring Peter's readers through their suffering and persecution as he did in Noah's day. In the first part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it tells us that since Jesus has won the victory, Peter's readers needed to rededicate themselves. He wanted to strengthen their resolve not to give up and keep on persevering in their faith. Truly, they needed to make most of their time. Now, if section, uh, this first section, which was chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11, if that first section was about individual responsibilities, now the next section, which is chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5, verse 11, is about the Christian's corporate responsibilities. What should Christians do collectively in times of persecution? First, uh, we can encourage others to persevere with the proper attitude. When we are, perse- or excuse me, when we are 
persecuted and suffer. It's natural to want to get revenge and restitution, but we need to have the attitude of Christ and enlist the power of the Holy Spirit to help us in our time of testing. Second, the church leaders are to take the lead in shepherding the people that God has charged them with. In the same vein, the younger ones are to submit to their authority. And then third, the church as a whole needs to practice self-control and stay on alert because the enemy will do whatever he can to pull us down. Now, Peter gives his readers one final word of encouragement to stand strong and persevere in the faith. Now, we leave 1 Peter and now go into 2 Peter. And the main concern of 2 Peter, which was written a few years after 1 Peter, was false teachers and their false doctrine. Peter was convinced that his readers needed to have true knowledge in order to resist the false knowledge that came from these false teachers. Chapter 1 of 2 Peter emphasized knowledge that is true. Knowledge that is true is knowledge that is built on the sure foundation of God and His Word. And Peter encourages his readers to add seven qualities to their foundation. These qualities, with God's help here, will enable them to mature. Furthermore, the truth that Peter is imparting to his readers is authentic. That is, it came from Christ. Peter says that he was an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Christ. What Peter was teaching them was based on his first-hand knowledge, both the witness of the apostles and the witness of the scriptures came from God. Now, until the Lord returns, the readers of Second Peter should give attention to the Old Testament and to the apostles' teaching. Now, today, the authoritative teaching of the apostles is bound up in what we call the New Testament. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament, every Christian should handle them as authentic truth from God. In chapter 2, the emphasis is on knowledge that is false. Peter realized that there will always be a problem with false teachers pushing their false doctrine within the church, and so he warns his readers to be on guard. These false teachers would be successful in leading some astray, but these enemies of God would face judgment in the future. And so Peter illustrated what he was talking about from the experiences of fallen angels, the world of Noah's day, and the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. False teachers might be able to fool some people, but they're their living, excuse me, cannot fool anyone. They might promise big things, but in the end, they're all promised all their promising is for their own gain or for their own benefit and not for the benefit of others. Now in chapter 3, the emphasis is on knowledge that is needed. There are many who are mocking the truth that Christ could return at any moment, namely because it had not happened yet. And as the years passed, it became harder and harder to believe. Even now, many don't believe in the return of Christ because two millennia have passed since Jesus first spoke those words. However, taking another example from Genesis, Peter reminds his readers that God in the past brought such a cataclysmic event on man, we know it as the flood, and he will do it again in the future when Christ returns in judgment. Therefore, in light of the Lord's return, we are to live godly lives so the Lord will find us faithful to him when he returns one day. Rather than being swept away by error, Peter encourages his readers to keep growing in the knowledge of God and keep asking him for help on a daily basis. That finishes 1st and 2nd Peter, and now we move on to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, 1st John was written to combat false teaching that had permeated the church. This false teaching opposed the very deity of Christ. John stresses that a proper understanding of the person of Christ is essential for fellowship with God and with other believers. Truly, if we don't know Jesus, then we will not understand God, nor will we understand how to have fellowship with him each day. You might also think of this small epistle as a large explanation of Jesus' teaching to the disciples in the upper room discourse of John chapter 13 through 17, kind of like a, um, a commentary on, on, on what happened. After the introduction of 1 John, the major 
the first major section is chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 17. And this section emphasizes the believer's fellowship must be focused on the Father. In order to enjoy fellowship with God, who is perfect, sinless, and absolutely holy, a believer must deal with sin on a daily basis. If we confess our sins, the text says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to restore us back into fellowship. And John here and throughout the book is talking about our sanctification process, not our salvation. Our daily fight and battle with sin is something we deal with on a daily basis so that we might grow in maturity and become more and more like Christ. Of course, the key to winning the fight is by being obedient to God, which in turn means that we must not love the world nor the things of the world. For if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. We must not be double-minded but single-minded in our focus on obeying God. Now, the second section, chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, concerns how our fellowship with the Father can be destroyed. You know, one of the major obstacles of healthy fellowship with the Father is doctrinal error. We as believers in Christ must constantly be on alert for the devil's attempts to divert our thinking away from God and towards the world's systems and their teachers and false doctrine. But we have a secret weapon that you might not know about. As a child of God, we have been anointed in the sense that we have the capacity to understand truth and detect error. However, that ability is because of the Holy Spirit who resides in us, and that ability is only good if we listen to the guiding voice of the Holy Spirit. The third section, chapter 4, verse 7 through chapter 5, verse 12, concerns how we are to live righteously. So John placed a huge emphasis on the believer's obligation to love other believers. Love and faith are essential parts to a right relationship with God. John ends the first book, or excuse me, yeah, John ends the first book with a final warning that a departure from the true God and his teaching is equal to idolatry. And by the way, this is basically a restatement of the first commandment for the benefit of us, for the benefit of us New Testament believers. We too can be led away into idolatry, just like the Israelites were, if we're not watchful. So from 1 John, we move into 2 John. Now, 2 John is concerned, and it's only one chapter, it's concerned with the proper balance of truth. Not only must not only uh, must we practice truth, but we must also protect the truth. John was impressed with the love that had been exhibited by this lady and her children in the text. They were practicing the truth that he had taught. But he also warned that the truth needed to be protected from false teachers who were distorting the truth and deceiving some of the believers. In the culture of John's day, philosophers and teachers often relied on the people to whom they spoke for lodging and financial assistance. John instructed his readers to refuse to help the false teachers in these ways and not even give verbal encouragement to these apostates. We must not approve or encourage the work of a false teacher, but we must show concern for their personal relationship with Christ. Now next is 3 John. 3 John is concerned with love, and it's important to put love into practice. John commends Gaius for his love, and he is commended for his treatment of visitors and his hospitality toward them. John warns of another man's lack of love, and his name is Diotrephes. He was the bad example that Gaius was not to emulate. He loved the world. Third, there's another fellow here. Uh, John illustrates proper love by means of the example of Demetrius, who was known to have a good testimony. As friends, Christians should show hospitality to and should support one another, the specific expression of love that John encourages in this small letter. Now we go on to Jude. The book of Jude shares similarities with 2 Peter. 2 Peter warned of the dangers of false teachers. When Jude writes, the false teachers had already infiltrated the church, causing Jude to write a rather forceful letter on the subject. 
Jude cites three examples of failure from the past to warn his readers of the danger involved in departing from the truth by following these false teachers. Those three examples are unbelieving wilderness generation, the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and the, and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The danger in departing from the truth is clear in all three examples. Destruction and judgment is the result. Then Jude describes in rather vivid detail the character traits of these false teachers. They are proud, deceptive, rebellious, covetousness, and selfish. They are capable of bringing severe spiritual damage upon the church and its body. God's going to hold them accountable, and God will judge them. Jude encourages his readers to hold fast to the truth and depend only on the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, our time is just about gone. So I think we'll be done for today. We're going to get into the first couple of chapters of Revelation, but I feel like we should wait until next week to do that. So next week will be our final podcast for 2020, be week number 53, and we'll cover all of the book of Revelation. And that'll give us plenty of opportunity to go through and talk about the book. Um, Only five days of reading, and you finished all of the scriptures. Can you believe that? From Genesis all the way to Revelation. From January 1 to December 31st, you finished it all. Now also at the end of next week's podcast, I'll talk a little bit about 2021 and the Bible reading plan for uh, that year. Hopefully 2021 is going to be not as bad as 2020. Um, And so the details, we've already talked about a little bit of them uh, they've been released in the Connect magazine, on the church app, lnbc.org, our website. So if you've read um, those releases, you kind of know what it's going to be about. I will, at the end of the podcast or post a new podcast, talk about the Bible reading plan for 2021. And for you guys, for our Bible readers, it's not really going to change a whole lot. The only thing that's going to change is going to be based upon our end. Um, we're going to go to a video format, and I'm going to get an extra person with me so we can team it up as we talk through your reading for the week. So listen for that towards the end of the podcast next week. And uh, that's all we got for today. So you know what to do. If you have any questions, send me an email at BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.